0: And sports, to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk.
1: Now. Hello, and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com, and joining me on the other line, he's got Sylvie Steinitz on speed dial. It's Andy Greenwald. Hi. Happy Thanksgiving, buddy. <laughs> What's up, man? Great to see you today. A stacked show. We've got the reaction to the finale of The Undoing from you and I. We've got Mallory Rubin joining us to talk about the latest episode of The Mandalorian. And then we have our interview with Melissa Mares, our old buddy, talking about her book about Days to Confused. It's really exciting. We'll get right into it after this. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages... What's up, brother? How are you? Is this the show? Yeah, of course it is. It's always the are show. We, are we recording? I it's, just listened to... It's all to, show, man. I just listened
0: to the beginning of our friend, not really our friend, Mark Maron talking to Mike Campbell from the Heartbreakers. Yeah. And those dudes just talk fucking gear for like seven minutes about like the magic of Fenders versus Rickenbackers and the what you got to do to get in the headspace for Les Paul. And then like seven minutes in, Mike Campbell sips some coffee and he's like, so are we going to do this?
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's us. We're just talking about our
0: lives. Chris, I I hope you had a decent holiday. I hope all our listeners had a decent holiday. Hopefully didn't travel or venture too far from their personal pods. I'm a little self-conscious because I'm a little uh little heady as we were discussing. Yeah. I'm a little congested. That's something that still happens apparently.
1: <laughs> how many how many different board certified doctors had to tell you that today <laughs> to get you in the right headspace? Is there? I wonder
0: if we have any listeners like this. Like, is there more any more annoying uh, role to play than being the doctor in someone's family? Do you know what I mean? Because my cousin oh, is yeah. a pediatrician, right? And I texted her because we usually spend Thanksgiving with her and her family, and obviously we didn't this year. Um, but I was communicating with her on Thanksgiving, and I and I realized by scrolling through our texts that basically our texts are, "What time is Thanksgiving?" What time should we be over? That was fun. Here's a picture of all of our kids together, and then eleven months of photos of bug bites or rashes on my children's body being like, "This okay? yeah, how's this look to you? Yeah, you know what I mean
1: uh no i I don't have any doctors in my immediate family, so I usually just uh I just solicit opinions where I can. You know
0: what you used to do, which I always admired, was you would just like, well, yeah, this is crush episodes of house
1: yes, and I then use- and then just deductive reasoning. I was sort of like an amateur an amateur position myself. <laughs> I think you certainly
0: felt that way. Um Chris, obviously this is a really stacked show as I said to you on text yesterday and you responded with yep. So I feel like we're on the same page.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh let's let's should we just get into the undoing?
0: No. Okay. <laughs> that was the beginning of a caveat <laughs> because I wanted to bring up something else with you. Okay. Before we got into it, which was you know, obviously a lot of political news still in the country. And you know us. We don't like to put our thumb on the scales. We're, we're no. just we I just report. Want, you guys I want decide. to let
1: Brian Kemp do his job.
0: <laughs> that, is, that is a civic leader that we can all admire in these difficult times. But I did notice that um, a very accomplished and deserving person named Jennifer Saki was named as uh, President-elect Biden's um, incoming press secretary. And she's familiar to people who listen to Pod Save America or paying any attention to the Obama White House, et cetera, et cetera. But it did remind me that I feel like the statute of limitations on this has worn off. Chris, do you remember we had a phone call with Jen Psaki?
1: Oh, yeah. It was this point when when they were like, do you want Obama to come on? Yeah.
0: <laughs> I feel like we should talk about this because it's so crazy. It sent me on a deep dive into my email and I found the emails from Jen Psaki. Uh-huh. Uh, at her WhiteHouse.gov account, and I can't believe this was real. Like I truly, well, it this turns is out so it it, He didn't no, on but, the podcast. <laughs> so, for people wondering what we're talking about, which is probably ninety percent of our audience at most times during our podcast, flashback to those golden years of early spring, twenty sixteen. Yeah, a young Kenyan socialist was still in the White House, and uh, your boys were still just just podding away on opposite coasts at the time, and we had the opportunity to do the HBO after show for Game of Thrones. By the way, Casey Bloys, that's some content you can still just plug onto Max anytime. It's a veil.
1: Sliding right next to the flight attendant.
0: No problem. It'll be great. And uh, so we were feeling pretty good. We were excited. This is a a lot of opportunities. And that was also at the time when our friend Dan Pfeiffer had uh, left the White House, but uh, I think was one of the people responsible for spearheading a kind of alternative was, media strategy. He went strategy. to go work
1: at uh, Dominion, correct?
0: Well, first he did a study abroad, which is weird because he was 39, in Venezuela. But he has been he's passionate about the culture. He's passionate about it. He thinks the cops on uh, The Undoing was perfect casting. And he was sort of doing the strategy. I mean, that was around the time when Obama went on like between two ferns and they were, and went on Marin and they were getting the word out and and putting him in front of different audiences, right? Getting the word out about
1: the leader of the free world. About being
0: America president, (laughs) American president. So, somehow, it reaches us that Obama is a huge Game of Thrones fan. Huge. His bit, and everybody's got a bit at the dinner table, his bit was, you know, House of Cards, that's not what DC is like. Game of Thrones—that's what DC is like, right? That was his—that was his bit, apparently, and he's a big fan. And so, someone was like, he would want to come on your Game of Thrones after show just to just to chop it up, mm-hmm. much like subsequent guests, uh, Haley Joel Osment and T. Payne, mm-hmm. You know, basically same diff.
1: And this escalated
0: to the same point level where we, of
1: Secret we, Service detail for sure. Yeah, we,
0: <laughs> Haley Joel runs deep. We had a planning call with the White House that I had to take pacing on my cell phone on Skirmerhorn Street in Brooklyn because I didn't pick up my kid from daycare. And we were like, yeah, you know, whatever the president would like to do, you know, we're, we're amenable. We could we could come to DC. We could do whatever. And we thought this was a possibility. They were very polite to the point where I found an email and maybe I should share some of this on Instagram where I was like, hey, Jen, great talking. As you can tell, Chris and I are really excited about the possibility, are you ready for this? Of POTUS's involvement in the show. Who, who are we? And I laid out like six bullet point strategy. Like, does he just want to come and talk about the episode? Does he have a point of view? Does he want to talk politics? Does he want to just like deep dive on Littlefinger? Mm-hmm. Like basically your guy here wrote an email being like, you know, whatever Barack's comfortable doing, we can really be amenable to him.
1: I mean, you should could, never wrote back, right?
0: Could you, <laughs> you're a master of, voices uh-huh. and sound effects you're 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 kind of the, the the frank welker of your era could you
1: is that the guy uh, from police academy i can't believe how <laughs> long we're gonna be talking about this
0: <laughs> i'm done i just want to say could you do the crickets that we got in response oh
1: i mean it was like a it was it was like the chorus <laughs> of the entire of the, all of the world's remaining forests yes <laughs> screaming into the void with cricket noises that's how hard we got dropped and all like we should not have even been offered this podcast opportunity in the first place. But yes, yes, I, it is one of that, the most treasured full-on rejections <laughs> of my life.
0: What I want to say is, nothing recommends Jen Psaki for this job more more than this experience.
1: Yeah, at least as she far knows as how, as how to weed him out. Yeah, for sure.
0: She 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 saw the chaff coming a mile away, and she just tossed it. So congratulations, Jen Psaki. Thank you for taking our call. Thank you, listeners, for taking this time down presidential memory lane with us. I'm sure Joe Biden has reached out about a Ted Lasso pod, but unfortunately I'm not interested. So let's talk undoing.
1: Let's do it. So this show became a little bit of a phenomenon, at least on the timeline. I don't know what the actual numbers are, but it was definitely like, I got the feeling like a lot of people watched it yesterday at 9pm Eastern, 6pm Pacific or whatever, and got to the end. And then it just was a really like fun 30 minutes on Twitter when, uh, Especially, I want to shout out Ben Dietrich, the author of the Brian Colangelo story for The Ringer, who had a, a, is a has a very funny like running bit about Hugh Grant's innocence on this show <laughs> and how they framed him.
0: I, I'd like to read that. I'd like to shout out Taffy Ackner, the, the brilliant profile writer and author, who just, I believe, at 10 p.m. Eastern, just tweeted, Christ. And I knew. <laughs> I knew what she was talking about.
1: So I think that we had had a lot of fun for a lot of reasons with this show. One was yeah. some of the ridiculous behavior. Obviously, we got to talk to Hugh Grant. That was awesome. We were very amused by uh, the international house of of thespians that they had on the show and their varying levels of commitment to accent work. But one of the reasons why I was into it was just a little bit of the theorizing that went into, well, this is, this is one of the rare mysteries that I feel like has not been cracked by the audience before the finale. You know, that there is not, uh, that there are still a lot of, of stuff up in the air that we're not really sure who 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 killed Elena and 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 could it be Jonathan? That seems too easy. Could it be Grace? They haven't really explained how that would work. It really seems like it had been Henry. That was the watch mm-hmm. clubhouse favorite. I obviously mm-hmm. was all in on that little guy. And the red herring of all the red herrings was that there were any red herrings at all. The the person who was originally charged with the crime committed the crime. He was a bad guy. And he gets hunted down by two. Easily accessible helicopters who spot his Range Rover among the millions of cars breaking north out of New York City on what seems like a glorious spring day in the Catskills. <laughs> and, you know, he gets caught.
0: A couple things. I believe it was the great Raymond Chandler who coined the phrase um herring. It's just a regular herring of no particular color or hue, <laughs> except in this case, Hugh Grant. Right. Two Chris, you haven't lived in New York for eight years, but there are readily accessible helicopters available to no. I know. I'm you can get
1: Uber Blades, right?
0: Uber Blades. Um, you can pick one up at the uh, what was, that? <laughs> Cent- What was that? The S- Century? What's that? What was that like? Uh, clothing store that had like discount bargains? It was like Century oh, Twenty One, right? Anyway, you can. H&M? You can there, there's a helipad right down by Zara on okay. uh, on Prince Street. You can just take it <laughs> wherever you like. You don't even have to return it. Um, I'm not sure where to begin here. Because I have,
1: a, I have a couple of things I want to hit on. I want to hear hit on the legal system and where we're at yeah. with that. I want to hit on Sylvie Steinitz and the erasure yeah. of her from the story. I seriously do want to talk about Elena and the sort of grand treatment of that character in the totality yeah. of the show. Where do you want to start?
0: I guess what I want to start just on a very macro level is I want to just contextualize my own reactions to the show because one thing that I've definitely picked up on from talking to people. And people have really wanted to talk about this show. You know, and I've joked about it in the past, that there are, we're lucky to have many listeners. And there's also a subsector of like a half a dozen women in my life, some in my family, some just friends or colleagues, who feel they have the the fast track uh, toll booth thing for our relationship and the podcast where they don't have to listen to us. They can just text me and ask for the opinion I gave on the podcast. Right. And all of them have checked in to talk about this show. And I think that there is a major uh, fork in the road here because I think that the majority of people who watch the show, and Between I don't mean you to sound and your, this.
1: and your binders full of women? Well, just friends
0: of mine and people in my family, but then also judge, you know, looking at Twitter. and I And I think that you're going to agree with me on this. People really had fun with the show and it delivered the kind of, you know, classy whodunit that they wanted to have in it during a difficult time (laughs) in America on Sunday nights. Yes. And if that's what people wanted out of the show, I think people were generally satisfied and we can obviously quibble about the specifics of the end. Your boy here, I think definitely in the minority, but I remained pretty frustrated that the show never wanted to be anything more than that. And I was particularly frustrated at the end because I think that the, the no twist twist that it was Jonathan all along is pretty interesting and compelling. Mm-hmm. And I think beyond that, once uh, Grace decided to become a Harvard educated psychologist again after <laughs> sitting a couple of episodes <laughs> out, that idea yeah,
1: that degree that got was, a little dusty that <laughs> for a few seemed, ba- episodes.
0: but suddenly front center doctor. Uh, that seemed baked into a show. This idea that an incredibly successful—let's um, just call it what it is—incredibly successful Karen could be so blinkered about her own life that something like this could happen, and so inoculated from trouble both by uh, her standing and her degrees, degrees, but also very much her, her financial privilege that this would undo everything mm-hmm. and. Ultimately, the show either didn't have interest in pursuing that or didn't have the time. It wanted to be kind of a salacious courtroom thriller and fine. But that was my personal calibration of disappointment with the show because I thought that other stuff was kind of interesting and I may have been in the minority.
1: I thought it was super fun. I thought the show was really like a great distraction over the last couple of weeks. I really enjoyed it. I looked forward to each Sunday. I watched it linear. I watched it week to week. I never really skipped ahead except for when we had to for Hugh. And um, I enjoyed the hell out of it. The last episode is not good. The, because the last episode is not good for a very specific reason. It's not fun. And it's not actually the show that it was before that. I enjoyed the fact that it was not an, an a, any kind of satire or analysis of upper class New York society. But I do think that it betrayed whatever like light character work it had done going into that final episode by just making everything bend around a twist. Now. That happens all the time. Like twists are probably a little bit too—they have a little too much gravity in our contemporary storytelling. Like you know, the sort of solving this mystery and what would twist be. But I, I was kind of taken out of the entire experience when Nicole Kidman's testimony happens. It would have been actually interesting if they had kept Jonathan's public defender. If they had kept the like the the sort of raggedy. Guy who's eaten steak and fries with Grace and is sort of just trying to like make a name for himself, but yes. does not have the muscle to kind of try a case like this. They make a huge deal about them paying for Haley Fitzgerald. And I actually really enjoyed that character throughout the season. I thought she was like a welcome, like hard edge, cynical, funny voice, even though she claims she's not funny throughout the season. But she gets dunked on in such an embarrassing and public way both in that last testimony but the entire like hide the hammer bit which be, whether that's ever happened in the history of jurisprudence or not like maybe maybe not but i don't know i don't know you you have to tell me cuz i know you you're closer to lawyers than i am like i i think that she would get disbarred immediately for that right like that is you make it,
0: you make it sound like I'm big meat or something like I know. Haitian <laughs> jack over here yeah i got some lawyers
1: i know, I know you got lawyers who will eat the case um There's just so many like, guys, this wouldn't, this wouldn't happen. And I actually thought like most of what the prosecutor does in Grace's testimony when she does her cross-examination, isn't that inadmissible? Isn't she basically saying like, I heard that you had a talk with this person on Skype. Wouldn't they just be like, what Skype call? Like, yes,
0: that's what they said. But then the judge suddenly woke up from his torpor. And was like, you called her,
1: like, you this is your witness. So anything goes, right?
0: You brought this down on yourself.
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's,
0: I, you're you're asking me to, you know, you're sending me back to my one L days, you know, which didn't exist. So I know nothing about whether that was accurate or not. I think generally, the opinion of lawyers, and I I am married to one. Like once you enter the courtroom on a TV show, they're just like, "That's cute, that's fine, yeah, right?" You know what I mean? Right. Like let let's just let it, let's let it be what it would be. Um, yeah, I felt like first of all, replacing one lawyer with the other was interesting because it changed up the speed right but i I don't think it was my initial suspicion was that maybe it was like an o one visa thing, but in fact, both those actors are British, so sure. hBO was just paying for all of those that paperwork regardless so it didn't really matter. I do wonder if the finale of the undoing will have an effect on some of the trump campaign's court cases going forward because I do think it seems possible that they might be more successful if they mirror Haley Fitzgerald and just stand up and sit down in the sassiest manner possible. I really appreciate that actress being like, how many more pages left? Okay, I'm going to take three of them to sit down because I'm not liking this. I really appreciated that. Um, Okay, so there's the, the the lawyer thing too, but this speaks to my point again, which was the fortune that is just available to them. And you'd think that Nicole Kidman saying daddy can you can you buy me justice essentially for however many hundreds of thousands if not millions of dollars he's all in for at this point between bailing out jonathan and then paying for this months of the best defense that money can buy and then he's just like, I'm so proud of you for shanking your own husband in this court case. Yes,
1: I've, I love you so much.
0: <laughs> and then let's, by the way, the helicopter's gassed and ready. Like there is no consequence to any of this. And again, like there starts to, sub- occasionally when the show seem to want a little edge to bleed in, like when they call Miguel to the stand, right? And they once again cast dispersions on the, the kind of hot-blooded, angry uh, Latino family and he storms in on them. How dare you do this? You're ghouls. And then the takeaway is, yeah, they're ghouls. Mostly we're just still impressed with Nicole Kidman's poise in her hair, and we move on. So so I, I just found it sort of frictionless. It was sort of hard to find a way in on that. I guess we did find the answer to the question, why is Lily Rabe hanging around here? Which was so that she could uh, sort of surreptitiously tank the case with her right. old classmate.
1: By doing the Ferris Bueller, like I saw this person at Baskin Robbins last night.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: I guess, you know, at the... It, I would just say about the Elena character is that um I I found the sort of like the fatal attraction twist at the end sort of to be not twist, but it was sort of this idea that she that she sort of attacked Jonathan to be unnecessary. I don't know. I, I, I guess like that part like rubbed me the wrong way. I saw some folks on Twitter talking about how like Elena never really gets any kind of agency in this show. She never gets seen by anybody but these like the white eyes of the characters, you yes. know, and and is talked about in that way, and even the way that she shot with her husband is like in a different way than like all of the other scenes in the show. Like, oh,
0: it, it's it, they use the chino filter that they used to use on uh, Ryan in the OC.
1: Yeah, whenever
0: they would go to his rough and tumble, rough and tumble neighborhood.
1: Yeah, so I it, thought that that was a little ridiculous. It's straight. I mean.
0: The show, that, that's the thing. And, and it, let's just say it again. No one was tuning into the show for its um, nuanced view on classism in New York City. Like, that's just not what this show was. And it probably was more successful all across the board because it was laser-focused on being this kind of high-class, salacious soap opera. That's thats what it wanted to be, and it more or less succeeded along those lines. But you're a million percent right that the show kept, in order to make the red herringy show that um, Kelly wanted to make. And mm-hmm. it's worth noting, you and I have not read the novel this is based on, but one of the things I learned, I think I picked this up from uh, Mark Harris's interview with Hugh Grant that ran this morning. I think on Vulture, people should check that out, is that the book makes it clear from the beginning That's Jonathan. that Jonathan did it. And it's really more about this character, the scales falling from her eyes or whatever and slowly realizing this. But to make it a TV show, Kelly wanted to muddy the waters and do this kind of, you know, maybe it's him, maybe it's her thing. And as Part of that, they really amped up this. Well, Elena was crazy. She's passionate and crazy. And her husband is angry and hot blooded, but they weren't characters. Mm-hmm. I mean, they didn't matter. They did, you know, they only mattered in as much as they kind of briefly temporarily messed up Nicole Kidman's life before she could helicopter off to a, a brighter future.
1: I just I, I love the idea also that like Nicole Kidman has gone along with this entire thing the the whole time. And then Grace gets put on the stand and is just like, well, I'm under oath. So, you know, it's just like, so she's like, if, if the yeah. prosecutor had been like, did Jose Altuve steal signs, she would just be like, yes, yes, he did.
0: Yes, I have to admit it now. And <laughs> my years of Astro fandom were for naught. Um, one thing I do want to note, though, I hope people listened to our talk with Hugh Grant last week. It was great fun. I, I thought he was great in this episode. He obviously I he had was great.
1: a blast in this. Yeah.
0: Great throughout. I mean, he for as much as the show tried to muddy the waters and chop things up and show flashbacks and sideways and oh, is it grace, whatever, he was pretty focused on the part he wanted to play. And this comes this comes across from the Mark Harris interview too, that he knew from jump that this guy was a narcissistic sociopath and yeah. played the hell out of it. And I think his performance throughout is phenomenal. I hope he's recognized with the words for it. I do want to say, he kind of spoiled it for us because when yeah. we spoke to him last week, We were saying last, we were
1: like, it's Henry, you know?
0: Well, but not just that, we were like, can you tell us, you know, I know all actors hate doing this because you pretend to be a publicist and like give us something racy or like give us a, a sizzle for, for the finale. And he was basically like, oh, well, I I do things I've never done before, whatever. And it's right. just like, well, he's pretty much done, every, done everything except club a woman to death with a hammer.
1: I was holding out hope that what he was referring to was when they get to the bridge he squirrel jumps off of it and lands on a, uh, like a wave rider being driven by, by Kenny Towers. <laughs> yes. Goes off to Canada via river travel, river boat travel. I mean, he did seem
0: to know that people could track him by cell phone early in the series because yes. he left his phone in the apartment. So clearly he didn't have real plans to escape because he's driving a car that is presumably like low jacked or whatever with two cell phones beeping away inside of it. And, yeah. you know, for people who don't know the region, it's not like you cross the George Washington Bridge and you're at Lake Erie. You know what I mean? Like, no. that is a six, seven hour drive. Yes. <laughs> until you sniff Niagara Falls. That's a, so, that's a
1: long time of just singing road songs with Hank, you know? <laughs>
0: last question for you, for you, Chris. Um, you know, I think longtime listeners know that you were a pretty exceptional lifeguard back in back in the day. Uh-huh. That bridge didn't seem that high. Is that going to is that going to take him out?
1: Yeah, I think so. I I mean, I, here's my thing is what I really want is undoing to Jonathan Frazier runs the yard. I, w- I want prison yes. John. And you know that Hugh Grant would do it. You know, he wants to be challenged. Just get him start up. <laughs> get him. The, he's the shot caller now.
0: Oh, I love it. He's yeah, He he's big dog. <laughs> Nobody messes with him. So that would be the redoing. Yeah. And then you could do a Nicole Kidman spinoff called "The Updoing," which is about when she gets a ponytail and tries yeah. to make that work. Um, look, it, it's it's funny. I I I guess I just want to point out, like I am falling victim to something that I think that we've been talking about, which is like we are at this moment when TV, particularly prestige TV, like that's a pretty overused term, and HBO it's found a nice little pocket here for these very. You know, sort of saucy soap operas, basically mm-hmm. HBO version of them, and I keep getting distracted and being like, "Well, this is supposed to be better than this," and I and I don't know if it needed to be better than this. It it executed right, so yeah. I think that it's probably going to be considered a success, even though neither of us liked the finale.
1: It's a stripped down version of it because I, the Big Little Lies version of this story is like a B plot about Lily Rabe and a C plot about Donald right. Sutherland and a D plot about the cops or or about somebody else you know it's got a certain sustainability to it and it would probably feel a little bit less like light in the foot the way undoing to me i never dreaded watching it i always felt like it was going to be propulsive and pretty you know edge of your seat viewing even if it was like empty-headed at times but it, it definitely this is an example of like the sort of the downside of that kind of storytelling because that's all you got at the end and if you screw it up at all, then nobody really cares about what happens to Grace. She's not an identifiable character in any human being kind of way.
0: I mean, and you're not helping yourself when your last image of your relatable heroine is, you know, safely ensconced back on her private helicopter.
1: No, <laughs> well, and that true. was
0: the end. Again, was there anyone when it ended? Do you think also anyone just like, like just takes now what? Henry
1: from a crime scene? It's just like we're out. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, we're out. They don't need a statement or anything.
0: We are extra legal. I mean, that's (laughs) the thing. Uh, Sorry to keep harping on this, but like, that's more interesting to me that these guys that that the Donald Sutherland is a nation state unto himself, right? Like, he clearly has all access paths to the Met, as people have been obsessing over Twitter. Like, he has an apartment that overlooks three major landmarks in Manhattan that, in other like, unless you're in Doctor Who's Tardis, don't abut each other, like. His version of reality, their version of reality, is kind of interesting, but instead it's a cocoon. The show retreats back to. So, I believe it, we'll is leave what it was. at
1: that. We're going to get into our conversation with Mal about the Mandalorian. Then we have Melissa coming to talk about. All right, all right, all right. Her oral history of Days Confused. I just want to say a little bit of housekeeping. If you have not checked out, please do check out a teacher because we've got Hannah Fidel coming on on Thursday to talk about that. We are also going to be going heavy on industry on Thursday, and then we have some special guests coming on the following Monday to talk about industry.
0: Also, uh, I'm very excited to fire up Small acts and we'll talk about those movies. These, these are the director Steve McQueen's series of five. He's calling them films. Some are shorter, some are longer, all about the Black, British, and immigrant experience throughout the last few decades, and hearing rave reviews about them, and uh, looking forward to checking those out.
1: All right, let's get into our conversation with Mal. All right, Andy and I are so, so, so happy to be joined by Mallory Rubin, our old running buddy from the Thrones Aftershows, and our pal in real life to talk about the Mandalorian. Mal, what's up?
3: Just an honor and a privilege and an an actual delight to be here with you today. Thank you both for having me.
1: I wanted Mal to come on. We wanted to talk to her about the Jedi, the most recent episode of The Mandalorian, which featured Rosario Dawson playing a beloved Star Wars canon character. And when I asked her, you know, I, she said she she was a little rusty with her canon. Yeah. And I was like, you know,
3: didn't want to let you down.
1: Well, I mean, with Andy and I, I
3: yeah, do have it, six pages of notes prepared, though, <laughs> for what that's worth.
1: I knew it. I knew How you. How much time <laughs> do we have? <laughs> well, before we get to your notes, I want to just do a little bit of um. Quick big picture stuff and also just sort of general impressions because I think that this show by
0: by big picture stuff do you mean a movie draft for like 2008 (laughs) (laughs) because Mallory and I are Mallory and I are uninterested
1: little cynical there um uninterested no I want to talk a little bit because I I was I was thinking about how this show has now entered the throne zone where you can watch the show and you can just enjoy the hell out of what you've just seen. The, the 30 to 45 minute episode you just watched and the, the story you're watching on screen. And you can take it and you can go and you can go about your life go to the other room you're allowed to go to in your house. Or you can watch the show and then spend hours afterwards reading about it and reading about the characters and reading about where this what this might lead to, characters we might see down the line. And this is when I, I remember when we were kind of like a season or two into Game of Thrones and it started to become this huge pop culture phenomenon outside of just something that was like, kind of like for the very specific fans of the story, people started reading Jason's column. People started listening to you guys on binge mode so much, you know, people really were interested in having this sort of extracurricular study of, of the story and it feels like that's where we've kind of arrived with *The Mandalorian*, although still with the format of this adventure of the week, episodic, almost like '50s TV Western style storytelling. For you, Mal, I mean, is it is it a? It must be a pleasure to have another thing that's like that.
3: Well, as you know, Chris, I don't have much else going on, <laughs> so it's a great gift, really, to be able to. Uh, immerse myself fully in a world that I love and be surrounded by characters that I love. It's funny that you you ask that and open with that because I think that was the thing I was most interested to hear from you guys about, actually. Like, Ben Lindbergh wrote about this in his uh, column for The Ringer, recapping this episode, which is outstanding. I would encourage everyone to read it and to read Ben every week. This idea of the the two lenses through which you can watch the show and whether it is as satisfying for the the viewers who maybe don't have that history with the characters, for people who didn't stand up and shout when, when Ahsoka mentioned Thrawn's name in this episode, for example, or who don't have history with Ahsoka, who aren't speculating about whether Ezra Bridger might be poised to enter the story, all three of which are things we should return to and discuss in more detail later in this episode. But to me, that's like one of the great master strokes of what's happening right now, is that, it can kind of be anything you want it to be. And, you know, each individual person can, can only have their own experience, obviously and their own, you know, history and their own desire to explore the world to whatever extent they choose. But I I thought that this episode in particular, which was my favorite episode of the Mandalorian and genuinely and truly one of my favorite episodes of TV ever. (laughs) Full (laughs) stop. I thought it was incredible is that if you're coming to it and you're interested in Beskar and what is going on with Din I under that love helmet. Beskar, man. And you've just been waiting. I know you do. You're like, when am I going to get a Beskar spear? When? You've just been waiting, waiting, waiting to learn Baby Yoda's name, to understand more about his history with the Force. All of that meaning the story that is unfolding anew in front of us, the story that is specific to this show and this creation. What an episode. And if you haven't quite had that ember of hope that Star Wars can properly unify canon snuffed out, which I had not. This was like a transcendent experience because I think that, and I'll stop talking soon, I promise. Nope. I got excited once I started. I'm sorry. One of the pitfalls, and we don't need to turn this into a Rise of Skywalker dunk fest or anything but I think
2: pretty objectively
3: (laughs) Greenwald perked up
0: I have six pages of notes about that
3: I'm sure one of the pitfalls of Star Wars period in recent years has come when any given iteration has attempted to connect back maybe too fully to the origin to the original trilogy to the roots I think that When Star Wars does that well, though, it's still one of the most satisfying things in storytelling. And I think that this episode was canon unification at a level that I I wasn't quite sure was possible anymore. The threads that have been brought into this story, the Clone Wars animated television series, which I adore, the Rebels television series, which I adore, both of which are Dave Filoni's babies, basically, and he was the director and writer of this episode. You're talking about novelizations, original novels, the prequels, Anakin's story, which is, of course, the Skywalker saga. There's some Snoke Palpatine we could get into here, which I'm less excited about. All of it works. All of it works. And this just feels like it's setting up not only to position the Mandalorian for these really rich installments that simultaneously give us that adventure of the week, episodic experience that's just kind of like poppy and fun, but also on this richer, connected text, not only for this show, but for the the wider universe and galaxy. And that's one of the things that's the most exciting about Star Wars, thinking about how big the galaxy can be.
0: This, kind of like with Thrones, I think that Mallory and I are good uh, examples of the different types of fans that uh, a show can engender. And I am 100% the casual fan of this show. In fact, more casual than Mallory's straw casual fan that she suggested that even uses the Mandalorian's name, which I had forgotten. (laughs) And frankly, had no interest in remembering. And yet I still feel very connected to the adventures of the show and enjoy it. it. And I I think that what's really amazing, and we talked a little bit about this last week um, when we were praising the previous episode, which was not nearly as good as this one, is how just profoundly easy they make this look, when in fact it's incredibly complicated, what what they're doing? Right. Um, yes, they are tightrope walking something that I, I thought not just in the realm of Star Wars. I thought was kind of impossible with contemporary giant IP shared universe storytelling, and that's the problem of every plank of the. What I don't now, I'm losing my metaphor, but every plank of the Beskar armor. You want to do that?
3: <laughs> every pauldron
0: has to both be on its own has to be a story in and of itself and also advance the cause of the larger narrative and please everyone. And that's how you end up with, you know, um, manic nothing burgers like The Rise of Skywalker that try to do everything to everyone all at the same time and end up doing nothing. And what this is doing is giving us characters we care about and setups that we understand that are very palatable and entertaining and enjoyable, while simultaneously sketching on the back of the giant star destroyer of canon mm-hmm. to the exact right degree. This show would be a very different beast and I think it would kind of be a disappointment if it was the, we are going to tell explicitly, this is what happened after, the, after Return of the Jedi setting up whatever the hell happened in the subsequent trilogy. This is the show that will finally spackle in that hole. That actually seems to be part of its project. But that's not its explicitly stated project. It's not just going to be about uh, the dark saber and Ahsoka and all of this. It's about these two people as they kind of hopscotch around and dance between the raindrops. And I wonder if this might be overly simplistic, but I kind of wonder if it just comes down to the right hiring decisions. And they seem to have given the show over to a what seems to be a healthy working partnership between Jon Favreau, who is a big tent, big picture kind of mass market filmmaker who clearly liked Star Wars, Chris, in the way that you and I did. We liked action figures and we liked seeing the movies when we were kids. And Dave Filoni, who, whose work I was ignorant of, but has spent the bulk of his professional, his lauded professional career yeah. worrying in the little crevices of this larger story. And they seem to have a very balanced working relationship that allows a show like this to be both all the time. And it's very pleasurable for it.
1: Yeah, I think one of the coolest things that's happened between season 1 of Mandalorian and season 2 of Mandalorian is the importance of Mandalorian in the world of Star Wars. Because when this show first came on, right. it was kind of like this is on streaming, we're going to do this episodically. It's we can take our time, maybe connecting it to canon, but what it is is like it's not a curio, but it was definitely like a little bit on the margins. And I don't think it's an overstatement to say that with Friday's episode it took center stage in the entire franchise. You know, it's it's hard for me to even imagine them doing a post-Ray Star Wars story at this point because they've clearly found a place where the chronology of this galaxy makes a ton of sense right now. And they can kind of play within these years in between these movies. They can overlap with the movies. They can tell different sides of different stories. So there's all of that. And I, and I feel like there was something about this episode that felt very momentous. The running time was longer than most Mandalorian episodes. Right. It felt more significant. There were obviously these big reveals. I'll say another thing. Mal, you were asking about, like, you know, Ben's point about who watches this or why do you watch this?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If this show, to pick a, a random TV show, a TV show, honestly, random, a TV show that I adore, if this show looked like Justified, if it just looked like a TV show, I don't think it would hit with me as as hard. I don't. Well, we really did know.
3: literally get Raylan Givens this season, right? I know,
1: I know, and I, I, I you'll never hear man. you'll never hear me say a bad word about any any of justified at all. I'm just saying that if it looked a little bit more like a traditional television show, I don't think that I would be as engaged with it. Now mm-hmm. that being said, I'm not necessarily like. Well, this is just obviously a uh, an homage to Throne of Blood. You know, it's like, I think that there are some very obvious hat tips going on here, oh, but yeah. it's the way that they've internalized those hat tips. It's the way that they're like, the cool way to show Ahsoka showing up is just to see the lightsaber in this foggy, fucked up forest, you know, and Iconic. to shoot it from the, the perspective sabers. of the people on top of this battlement on this in this fort who are just like, doom is coming, you know, and... That's actually tricks that George Lucas was using. That's how Vader gets introduced when they're in the hallway and they're just shaking. You don't see Vader. You see people's reaction to what they think is coming. That's just good storytelling. You associate that
3: first moment with the sound of the breathing and the reaction of the people that he's about to... In
0: many ways, Chris, The Mandalorian is an homage to fighting in hallways because even when they're in a town, it's somehow more fighting in hallways. And I'm not complaining. That's, That's important to the franchise.
3: I think, Chris, that, that that point you just made is feels really fundamental to what set this episode apart from even, as you're saying, prior installations of this actual show. Like, take a, another Felony episode, actually, from season one, episode five, The Gunslinger, the Tatooine episode, right? Mm-hmm. Now, of course, we have since been back to Tatooine, and it's really fun. And I think if you revisit that episode, actually, there's a lot there to enjoy. But that episode which again, I still liked. I mean, I've had fun every week of The Mandalorian, elicited a little bit more of a, almost like Force Awakens response from the fan base of, do I need to kind of keep having this same experience or like Easter eggs and an homage for the sake of saying, hey, you know this thing. Like you will recognize this creature or this dune, right?" Right, right? And the distinction ultimately between between facsimiles and attempts to replicate or approximate something and between love letters that actually tap into why people care about the thing in the first place. And I think that's what this episode nailed. And I think that that gets back to the point that you guys were making before, too, about the the Favreau-Feloni partnership. Like, that's what I associate most with Favreau right now. And I think probably just because we're doing Binge Mode Marvel and I've been thinking a lot about, like, we talk enough about what an amazing thing it was to, to make Iron Man and launch the MCU that way? And the 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 heart of that, you know, of course, you could talk about all well, the focus groups where even the people who were doing it were surprised about the kids basically saying, I want to play with this toy and how much of everything that followed came from that. But that ultimately the seed of it that flowered into this amazing thing that is like defined cinema for a decade was what if we had like the people who really love the stories make them? Mm -hmm. And I just think that like, that's been the thing that has stood out to me the most about getting more familiar over the last few years with Dave Filoni's work. Like this idea that he was kind of knighted by George Lucas himself to inherit the aspects of the story that I think are most precious to people, which is, and I don't want to like introduce a bunch of straw man or generalize and imply that my experience with star Wars is the same as anybody else's. But when I watched, The Clone Wars, and when I watched Rebels, I I was really like, this is what Star Wars is about. And of course, if I sit down to watch A New Hope or Empire Strikes Back, it's still going to be one of the most awe-inspiring experiences that you could possibly have as somebody consuming pop culture, like no matter how many times you've seen it, right? But The Clone Wars takes place in the same general time frame as uh, uh, Attack of the Clones and... Sith. In other words, the prequels, the derided prequels. Now, I I ride for Sith, but that's a separate podcast. Wow. And (laughs) (laughs) that was when people fell in love with Ahsoka. And it was this amazing ability to simultaneously establish this character who meant so much to so many people on her own, for her own choices and her own distinction and the things that she stood for and represented, but also because of what she unlocked about a story that we already had an attachment to. Her relationship with Anakin, and we should just say, she is Anakin Skywalker's Padawan. She's Darth Vader's Padawan before he became Darth Vader. That relationship is, I think, as foundational to how I think about Star Wars as any in the in the in the canon which mm-hmm. is kind of an amazing thing to say out loud but it's true. And so seeing her enter live action at last. It's one of the things that I think a lot of people who have have grown so attached to her character have just been waiting on and waiting on this this figure who is elemental to the universe. Finally there.
0: So let me before we get into the specifics of who she is because you know I I think this would come as no surprise to anyone. I didn't know that. Have not seen those shows had no idea other than like, oh, that's, she's a meme or a gif. Like people really like this character. So let me start over, start at the Mm -hmm. very beginning and by saying-
3: With Grogu's um, birth? Well,
0: I have some notes on the name. Um, Uh, I am uh, first and foremost, as everybody knows, a Rosario Dawson fan. And I can neither confirm nor deny that I knew about this. But I will say that my reaction to this- was Yeah. Well, the second flexes was when I was texting with her after watching the episode and asking her to come on the watch. She confirmed and did not deny that Lucasfilm would not like her doing press outside of what they agreed to. So she sends her regrets and is unable to answer all of our questions about her at this point. Just to say how fucking cool this is, because I think, you know, I, I, I worked with her. I spent like a whole year with her. And I think that there are three things that really, 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 really animate her. One is geek culture. New, New Jersey politics. Of, well, I'll add, I'll get to that. Geek uh, culture, Star Wars, Star Trek, comic books. Uh, two, being an action star and being a boss. And three, getting more voters registered and involved in our electoral process. And the election is over. So to see her get to do these things, because I think I've said this in other contexts on the show, like we would have a scene in Briarpatch and her character would have to like run across a parking lot and they would bring in a stunt double and the stunt double would be fine. And then she would do it in heels without breaking a sweat. She was born to play this part. And what was so exciting is that apparently, and Mallory, you can speak to this, the fandom cast her as this part quite That's some right. time ago. Yep. And we've spent this season of The Mandalorian talking about just like, one of the things that makes it feel so handmade in the best possible way is that the casting decisions are not coming from central casting, or else mm-hmm. Amy Sedaris wouldn't be a recurring character on the show, you know, or Horatio Sanz wouldn't be
1: in this show. Yeah,
0: it's it's cast with love and with affection, or probably friendship in a lot of these cases, and that when it comes time to deliver, you know, uh, to the fandom and deliver to our friends like Mallory, they didn't fuck it up. They didn't overthink it, right? They were like, here's a person who is born to do this and everybody wants to do it. Guess what? We're going to do it and we're going to deliver. And even as someone who had never encountered this character or even knew this factoid until you just dropped it on us, I felt it. I felt the force when she appears <laughs> because it was beautifully framed and it communicated to us that this mattered. And so I know I'm beating the same drum over and over again or in the spirit of this episode, the giant novelty gong, but they don't overthink it and they don't screw it up. And it's really hard to overstate how important that is. So now tell us why she matters.
3: (sighs) Got to take a deep breath here. Maybe do some stretches. (laughs) All right. I'll try to keep, I will actually try to keep this quick. (laughs) Okay. Why does Ahsoka matter? First of all, I just will quickly shout out Ashley Eckstein, who voiced the character in both Clone Wars and Rebels. It was awesome. Ahsoka. Anakin Skywalker's Badawan. You can read some very funny interviews with Dave Filoni over the years where he talks about what it was like when George Lucas told the people who were helping to make the Clone Wars that Anakin had a Badawan, and they were all like, no, he doesn't. What are you talking about? And George's like, no, he does classic George Lucas Star Wars story. Anyway, she is a main character in Clone Wars. She has her own novel, 2016 E.K. Johnson novel called Ahsoka that's really good, really fun to read. She's in Rebels as well and connects to that cast and that story in a really interesting way. Why does she matter? Top level summation here. First of all, she's a woman in Star Wars And that means a lot to a lot of people. She is obviously introduced into the canon long after Leia, but I think in a lot of ways really paved the way for Rey. And I say that from the perspective of everyone trying to get back into the headspace where we all really remembered and appreciated how meaningful Rey's creation was and not just the post-Rise of Skywalker malaise that everybody is in, right? Her relationship, again, to Anakin, really a defining thing in the show. The way that you understood his character and his arc, not only the evolution, the fall to become Darth Vader, but the humanity inside that allowed him to then become Anakin again, obviously in the original trilogy, she's fundamental to that. In part because, and this is the, this is a huge thing, she leaves the Jedi Order. So I don't know if you guys feel this way too, but one of the things that I'm always like slamming my, my he- head into my hand about when I watch Star Wars is like, Yoda, Mace Windu, can we just have a chat about, like, a better way to handle this, maybe? And then would we have Darth Vader? Would Palpatine have won? And the rigidity of the Jedi strictures and how many bad things happened because of that. And I think the really interesting thematic explorations that opens up about uh, what happens when there's no room for subtlety or nuance in a person's life or how they choose to live that life, right? Ahsoka... I lot of people discover all of the plot points on their own, but spoiler, was falsely accused of something and left the Jedi Order in protest. She leaves very close to when Anakin eventually has his fall. And so you understand his fall totally anew based on what the loss of that relationship did to him. We get some very cool stuff in season seven of Clone Wars, which was just on uh, recently that gave us a couple more entries into their relationship together. One of the most, and I, I mean this sincerely, this is not, hyperbolic. One of the most exceptional duels, lightsaber duels in Star Wars history comes between Ahsoka and Vader in Rebels. It is animated, of course, and just the action of it, the pop of it, the flare, the color. It's thrilling to watch. And there's just like a gut-wrenching moment <laughs> when... I almost sent it to you guys, uh, texted it to you earlier and then I knew you wouldn't watch. <laughs> when she breaks <laughs> Vader's helmet and she can see because she like can't accept that this has happened to her master and her friend, that this is really him, that this is what he's become. And when she sees his face and she hears him say, (laughs) say her name. And then she's like, I won't leave you. It's just devastating. It's so sad and so beautiful. The white lightsabers. So she has originally, she fights with two blades, as you saw a regular lightsaber and then a Shoto blade. She has this really distinctive fighting style. And that's obviously part of it too. She's, she's elite she's a badass she's there's a there's a, a feloni interview from a couple years ago where it, he basically was like the the only people who we could have put against her would have been Vader and the emperor like that's the caliber of fighter that we're talking about and after she put aside the blades the exact Canon differs in her novel and in what we saw in season seven of Clone Wars but basically she has to like go into hiding right after order 66 as we see in this episode when we learn so much more about little baby Yoda Grogu, we should never lose sight of the fact that anybody with Force abilities was in grave peril after the Empire's rise. And she ends up forging these blades anew by purifying the previously bled kyber crystals. So, like, when... (laughs) Remember when I said I'd keep this short? (laughs) (laughs) When... Uh, when when we see a red blade, it's because a kyber crystal has been bled, like impurified. And so she purified them anew. And she has these iconic white saber blades that not only just look really cool and are fun to watch pop on your screen, but again, they represent that she is unique in in the the vast constellation of Star Wars. She has made different choices than people, and the ability to simultaneously forge these these uh, lasting and 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 essential bonds with characters like Obi Wan and Anakin, Ezra. Sabine, but also to choose her own path, to be an independent thinker, to not just accept what other people have told her, that has made her very special to me, and I think to a lot of people. So a huge part of her story has been untold, and I think we're finally going to get it.
0: It's not just her story being untold. What I am continually shocked and amazed by when I speak to you or you know, or other super fans like Chris Ryan, <laughs> it, it's truly stunning Star Wars 20 year commitment into not putting the good parts in the movies <laughs> like that's really 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 wild and 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 Chris and I are people who have long championed not necessarily for clicks although maybe for like reads in the old magazine days like you know the most popular album by an artist isn't the best or like the deep cuts mm-hmm. or we like the weird books that didn't quite work like that's a thing I get that. Maybe, you you know, you you order off-menu at In-N-Out or whatever. But, like, at least the In-N-Out main menu is good because it's cheeseburgers. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, everything you're saying, minus some nouns and adjectives I didn't understand, sounded very complicated uh, and compelling. It is. And worthwhile. Yeah. And it's in a cartoon. Yeah, I like cartoons. Chris doesn't. He's the bad guy here. But it's in shows that the vast majority of people who even, you know, casually say they're Star Wars fans haven't engaged with. That's so bizarre. So maybe the reason why Mandalorian is good, I'm just spitballing here, is because Lucasfilm made the decision to put the good parts in the show? Yeah. Is that far-fetched? Like, that's well, weird, because it's but, not just, they didn't talk about bleeding crystals, no offense. They just gave us this badass heroine who now we like.
1: So this is it's, the crucial it's, question it's, that I'm kind of curious to hear Mal's take on. And you you can't possibly answer this because who knows, but one of the interesting things that they have been doing with Mandalorian is introducing people, introducing mm-hmm. characters, be they beloved ones from from the canon or just kind of like, oh, interesting. And right. then kind of leaving the planet that they're on and going somewhere else and right. doing something else. And for as much as we've now talked about uh, Ahsoka and, and everybody else in, in this episode, this is the same episode as every Mandalorian episode. Mm-hmm. Mandalorian shows up with the child. Right. He needs something. The person who has that thing is like, I will give it to you, but you have to do something for me. Mandalorian does that. And then we find out at the end, in this case, she gives him just like another kind of breadcrumb trail to follow. So they're still telling the story in the way that works for them in this very small box that the Mandalorian operates in narrative-wise. I'm curious whether or not this will be an inflection point for the series, whether or not these storylines that are obviously... Bubbling right under the surface will start to be a little bit more prevalent.
3: Mm-hmm. Or
1: whether there's so what was this was episode six, right? Five. Five. So there's three more, overall. right? There's three more episodes uh this season. Will the last three episodes be he goes and fights a cave monster here, and then he goes and goes okay. to an ice planet there, and then he goes to a swamp planet here? Or are we going to start to see some of this stuff converge where Thrawn is obviously mentioned? In this episode, that's who she's asking Elspeth about in the Kill Bill homage that was just fucking sick. Or will uh, Moff Gideon come back? Like, Are we going to start to get a little bit more continuity and and serialization, or is it going to remain episodic and this is a five, six-year plan for for Lucasfilm?
3: So my guess, my prediction... Founded, I'll be honest, more on my personal desire than on (laughs) (laughs) anything else, is that it's going to be both. And I think if we pan back to to two episodes ago, The Heiress, when Katie Sackhoff shouts to all my Starbuck, Battlestar Galactica heads out there, came in as Bogtan, another key figure from the animated shows in the Filoni-verse, she voiced the character and Uh, In those shows as well. I think that a character like Bo. A a couple points here. A character like Bo, I think, is more likely than Ahsoka and Thrawn and Ezra, who I'll get to in a minute, to play a role in the Mandalorian moving forward. Because Bo has direct deep ties to key figures in the main cast of this show. Moff Gideon, the Darksaber, Bo wielded the Darksaber. So what happened there during the Great Purge and the fall of Mandalore? What exactly are we going to learn about Din's history, that that child of the watch line that we got from Bo in that episode? How does that that connect to what (laughs) fans like you guys already understood about Death Watch and the role that Death Watch had played in Mandalorian culture? There's a lot to mine there. And I I suspect, given what has unfolded so far in the two seasons of the show about Mandalore, about the way we will see the attempt to revive Mandalore happen on this show. I think. I think that the Ahsoka Thrawn stuff is, I I, I, I think this was a, a, a pilot, pilot setup. So that's yeah, that, that was what a, I was going to ask you,
1: Andy, is that, you know, I mentioned earlier that it feels like they're pushing Mandalorian more to the center of 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 Lucasfilm. Frankly, like that, I don't even know where we're at with the development of the various movies that you know were being talked about. I mean, there's a Kevin Feige movie, Ryan Johnson movies. That there there are a variety of different projects going on at any one time. Currently, what we know is that Rogue One. There's a Rogue One prequel. There's an Obi Wan show. In the cash
0: in and or show. Yeah,
1: right. And that there is a uh, and that there's an Obi Wan show. And then a couple of times over the course of the season, it's been kicked around that this is, there are other spinoffs coming from The Mandalorian, whether it's with Gina Carano's character, whether it's Bo-Katan, or whether it's Ahsoka. Like, this is the engine now, is what I'm saying.
0: And it's it's the smart play. It's just so much smarter to build these from the ground up, as opposed to start on the highest possible, loudest, noisiest level, and then tamp these stories down onto television. I mean, the the ceiling for the show was always so high because I think even if it had remained the way you had, um, the way you just described it, Chris, the way it began, right? As like kind of marginal, but entertaining and family-friendly and a nice way to start a uh, streaming service. Mallory, I know you're with me on this, Dainu, Like that is enough for Disney Plus for everyone because after <laughs> years of kind of bumpy management, that was a nice uh, middle-of-the-road success that could be pointed to for future growth, it's better than that. It's richer than that. It's deeper than that. And every planet they go to, there's a spinoff there. I'm not saying many people would want the um, ice fishing uh, spinoff on the Calamari planet that I personally (laughs) want, but I'm saying that there's opportunity Uh, on each of these places with each of these guest stars and the way that they're being handled is seems now What's brilliant about all of this is that we've been saying, oh, this is so old-fashioned, it's gentle, but if you just put on your Bob Chapek capitalist hat, it's also savagely brilliant, right? Because we're getting just enough of each of these characters to want a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And then they can say, well, is this character trending well in which quadrant of fandom and what can we do with them? And, the sky's the limit for the streaming service, especially now that people are getting used to, oh, there's a movie event or there's a rentable mm-hmm. thing or whatever. So and I'm sure Mallory can speak to this and, and probably will again as these stories come up, you know, it, when we talk to you more about it. But if they want to have a more Ahsoka, does that mean there's an Ahsoka show? What, is right. the, what does the show even mean? Maybe it's a four episode mini event where mm-hmm. she finds the person that she's talking about and does the thing. Isn't that exciting? It might not be worthy of a feature film that has to open around the world and make a billion dollars, and it's more than a, a one-episode spinoff. But here you go. Once one size doesn't have to fit all when you're building from this is the template.
3: So, I I agree with all of that, and I would just I would draw one distinction, which is I think that what what you're observing about kind of like the the very organic, almost constant test balloons of hated you like this planet, hated you like this character. Would you like to spend more time there? Has been consistent across almost every episode. What we got in this episode was different because this opened up again the question of what happened to the rest of these characters' lives. People have been wondering about this. So the last... and uh, Guys, stop me if you've heard this before. I'll try to keep this quick. (laughs) 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 The... Spoiler, epilogue of Rebels, which concluded, is Ahsoka at that point in a white robe carrying a white staff, a very clear, and Filoni has acknowledged this, he often compares Ahsoka to Gandalf. She's his Gandalf figure, and she had graduated from being Ahsoka the gray to Ahsoka the white. We see her in gray robes in this episode. What does that mean about what we thought we understood about the timeline? I'll come back to that in a moment. Ahsoka and Sabine ran another key character in the Mandalore verse setting off to find Ezra Bridger, the protagonist of Rebels, one of the Jedi who is out there where we do not know and we still do not know. And I think and I hope that the put Grogu on the seeing stone, have him reach out through the force and see if anyone Reaches back is how Ezra is going to come back into the story. Mallory, and I
0: just I have to ask, <laughs> Ezra, yeah, <laughs> does he get the Dainu reference? Is he one of us?
3: Oh, Ezra,
0: God. Ezra doesn't
1: roll on Chavez. Is this
0: is this return of the Judai? Like, is this going to happen
3: for us? Listen, this if, if that can get you to check out rebels, then let's let's roll with it, man. Let's let's see know. what uh, happens. I feel like
0: our people aren't always the rebels, you know. Sometimes. But please go go on.
3: So, again, spoiler, Thrawn and Ezra, and Thrawn is, quickest possible version of this I can give, is that he is a iconic Star Wars villain from the EU, from what is now Legends canon, who was brought back into the main canon by Filoni in Rebels. He was the uh, bad guy
0: in the books that came out in the 80s, right?
3: Right, exactly. So those, you can read uh, the Timothy's On books and get a better feel for, for Thrawn, blue skin, red eyes this like master tactician loves art, has a great art collection. Well, it's just a little yeah, bit like Donald Sutherland culture. in the
0: undoing. <laughs>
3: and Ezra and Thrawn disappear together. Ezra basically sacrifices himself to take Thrawn off the map, shouts to the purgles, the space whales who can jump nope. into hyperspace. No, you guys you have had us. lost it the space for- whales. <laughs> so to me, Ahsoka trying to find Thrawn is Ahsoka trying to find Ezra. And that's how this is all going to come back together. Whether we get an Ahsoka movie, an Ahsoka show, or whether we basically get the continuation of Rebels in live action, I don't know, but I feel like it's heading that way. Of course, there's a less pleasant alternative, which I think we have to mention, given the Grogu of it all, which is that the person who's going to hear him is Palpatine, right? Because... Uh No, (laughs) they
0: they wouldn't. They wouldn't do it.
3: I I hope not. But I don't want to like totally five. ignore the fact that last episode, Doctor Pershing comes back into it. The idea of the Strand cast, what they're mining, little Baby Yoda's high midichlorian count blood for the cases with the uh, snoky looking clones. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just again give me Ezra, please. But
0: the, the, we one have of to the reasons that. why the Mandalorian is so pure still, even. 13 episodes in is because it is still in those beautiful early days when it can be what any of us thinks it should be. It hasn't Mm -hmm. yet had to commit to being the thing that it ultimately will be. Right. It's not, it has not,
1: doesn't have an end game yet.
0: and, and, And because of that, I can watch it this way. I think Chris to some degree watches it this way too. I think of it and I consider it through the lens of a low key, occasionally high key repudiation of seven, eight, and nine and how they mismanage things for the last few years. <laughs>
1: that, that, uh, that opinion really works for you.
2: <laughs> it really works for me.
0: And I don't think I'm speaking out of school when I say I think it works for people who are happily employed at Lucasfilm. Sure. I'm not saying that like in and of itself, there's like a rebel alliance within the company. I mean, the company is a the company. They make choices and some are good and some are bad. But I do think that even from my tangential knowledge of people who work there, they are not blind to mistakes that were made you know, and I think that everyone is thrilled with the success of this and part of the success of it, repudiation's a big word, but paving a new path, let's say, yeah. I think mm-hmm. feels to me baked into it. And so the, as soon as you start saying unpleasant words like Snoke or even in the other direction like Watto or whatever, like he's, it's not pure anymore. And I think Favreau has the the weight. I mean, they, they hired him to do this and he did the damn thing. And I, mm-hmm. I don't think it's I don't, I don't think we're just grasping at straws when we say, I think that his love of the series ends with the Ewok singing Jub Jub. Like, <laughs> I don't think he wants to go there. Right. So I think we're safe.
1: Um, Mal, thank you so much for joining me and Andy today. You really, I honestly, you expanded our universe. <laughs> you
0: are, yes, really you are. Nice. Our Everybody expansion. should be
1: listening to Binge Mode. It's one of the best podcasts out there. They're doing Marvel right now. Um, and Mal, we'll have to have you back on to talk about Mandalorian as we, as we wrap it up.
3: I would love to. I'm eternally yours and Grogu. Thanks for having me.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Mal. We'll take a quick break and get to Melissa Meyers right after this. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See mintmobile for more details. This episode
0: is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Okay, we're back, and Chris. Even though we spoke to Mallory at great length, we didn't even get into Baby Yoda's name, which I'm cool with never saying. We could save
1: it for Thursday, but I, I was, it was a real record scratch moment. It, I was like, Grogu. I also was
0: sure that they had like spent two or three years like loosely market testing it. You know what I mean? Right. The best theory I heard was that they gave both the Mandalorian and Baby Yoda super dumb names so that no one would use them and just keep calling them
1: baby Yoda and the Mandalorian. Yeah.
0: So I support that theory. Um, Okay. Moving on quickly. Chris and I are so happy anytime we get to have friends on the podcast. And here comes another one. One of our uh, oldest and dearest uh, who we used to work with back at spin magazine back in the day is Melissa Mayers. And Melissa has spent the last few years uh, working on an oral history of the beloved, 1993 Richard Linklater movie, Dazed and Confused. And the book is now out in stores. It's called All Right, All Right, All Right. And we were so happy to have Melissa on the show to talk to us about the book, the movie, her relationship with Richard Linklater, her conversations with the cast, what Nikki Cat is up to these days, (laughs) all of it. I think we say this in our conversation with Melissa, but I just think it's worth saying now again before we get into it. Even if you don't have a strong opinion about this movie, even if you haven't seen it in a while, this book is still worth checking out. Yeah. It is it's just,
1: a, it definitely, it feels like it tells the story of movies in the 90s in a lot of ways.
0: And it's a hell of an entertaining read. And because this is the holiday time, let us also say if and when you buy this book, and you should, don't buy it from a big box store. Don't do Amazon. Go to your local bookstore. They have it or they'll order it for you. Um, you have a couple weeks till the big holidays, you can get it in time, support your local businesses and your local bookstores. Uh, that's what randall pink floyd would want you to do um,
1: definitely <laughs> so
0: that guy that guy cared about the little guy he did. he did actually
1: right yeah absolutely uh let's get into our chat with melissa
0: chris and i are so thrilled and pleased to be joined by an old and dear friend of us melissa mares who is a brilliant uh writer critic journalist thinker and now the author of a fantastic book all right all right all right the oral history of richard linklater's Days and confused out now in bookstores everywhere. Melissa, thank you for coming on The Watch.
2: Oh, this is the best. It's so good to be on with you guys. Melissa, <laughs> I also...
0: I, wait, Chris, I got the title of the book wrong. and She may notice it. I bet Melissa as a stickler for details. <laughs> I called it the oral history of Days and Confused, but you, being the generous person you are, called it an oral history, leaving the door open for future you know, oral histories.
2: You know, I believe it's actually the oral history, but you must have the galley, which says... I do. An oh, an wow. So you were being thing. too
1: modest. <laughs> I just hit publish on my ebook oral history of days to confused.
0: (laughs) Oh, good. Okay. Because I saw that little window of daylight
1: there.
2: (laughs) I know I I have much of the stuff that's on the cover has not a lot to do with me, except for the title.
0: (laughs) And and your name, which is (laughs) rightfully there (laughs) and hasn't changed. So we are thrilled to have you here. Um, Days and Confused is obviously a very important movie to many people, and people have very strong opinions of it, more people than I even realized. And I know this is where all conversations about this book for you begin, including the one we had last week for the Austin Film Society. But I feel like for our listeners, it's worth uh, getting into it this way, too, because there are many movies that are beloved and there are many movies that have become cult films. Why this movie and why you uh, and why devote this many years of your life to this project?
2: I knew there'd be good stories behind the scenes for lots of obvious reasons. Like it's kind of a hinge point point in a lot of people's lives for Richard Linklater, obviously it's his first studio film. And it was a lot of people's first movies, like, you know, obviously Matthew McConaughey, but I think personally what made me interested is that I read an interview with Richard Linklater saying that he wanted dazed and confused to be an anti nostalgia movie. And it just felt funny to me that this anti nostalgia movie has become the biggest nostalgia movie for so many people that I know that makes them nostalgic about the 70s or about high school. And now I think it makes a lot of people nostalgic for the 90s. So that was the first question was like, how did this anti-nostalgia movie become the biggest nostalgia movie of all time?
1: (laughs) Was Days like a, a big movie for you when it first came out? Or was it something that you eventually came to a little later?
2: Yeah, I mean, it definitely was. I saw it in the theater my first year of high school. So I feel like it was kind of, I was the prime audience for this movie. And it's funny, you know, it didn't really feel like the 70s to me. It felt like this is your future. Like this is what the next four years of your high school life are going to be like. <laughs> we're just kind of exciting and terrifying. Yeah. Were you time.
0: still wiping the ketchup and mustard <laughs> off your face in the movie theater as, as you were seeing it? I mean, you were, be, you were not freshmanized though, of course.
2: I was not freshmanized. Oh, good. Um, but I think, you know, like I'd never smoked weed before when I saw that movie. I'm like, oh, that's what smoking weed is like. And like, I'd never like been to a real high school party. I mean, like I was a real, you know, all of this just felt like this is what's going to happen in your life, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: It, it's such an interesting point to make because I think that there is a, even across the eras, there's a common language of high school movies that have kind of taught us almost a, in a strange Direction What high school should be like? I mean, this is because we're all essentially the same age. We were all in high school when this movie came out. And this coupled with the John Hughes movies of the previous generation and what have you, like, oh, there's a certain way of being and a certain set of expectations of the types of fun or frustrations you might have. Can you talk a little bit about why this movie got those things right?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I grew up with the John Hughes movies and um, none of them felt even slightly relatable to me. Like I liked them, some of them for different reasons, but they all seem to be about kids wanting to be rich.
0: <laughs> right. and, um,
2: you know, there's always like some kid's mansion that the kids are partying into or someone's jumping into a pool or like, you know, something, it was just this world that I just could not relate to. And everyone kind of seemed like they were 45 years old. <laughs> and what's funny about Dazed is it felt so much more real to me. Like nothing really happens in this movie. It's all just these kids hanging out, doing nothing, really being bored. Um, And just kind of most of the movie is them waiting for something cool to happen. Like, I think, Andy, you mentioned you're like the hinge point of this movie is like someone going to a party that's not actually happening anymore, like a party that's canceled. Yeah, (laughs) yes. And that's like the pinnacle of drama in this movie. But it just felt real to me and really relatable. Like it almost, you look at those John Hughes movies and by comparison, days to confuse kind of looks like a documentary on those.
1: <laughs> yeah. There's something I think you touched on it just a second ago, but the way in which the performers almost uniformly have this very modern quality in which they like the way they're interacting and relating to each other has really contributed to the timelessness of it. I, I the only thing I can kind of compare it to is, is more Mad Men than anything like a John Hughes mm. uh, movie where, you're getting this sort of period piece, and there are hallmarks of the time, but they are behaving in a way that is just universally recognizable as, oh, that's how people in high school act. And and like the, that thing you're saying about like Hughes movies were often a fantasy, and this this was much more of a reality.
2: Yeah. Definitely. I mean, you look at that party, like the big party that they've been waiting to go to out in the woods and everyone's kind of greasy and everyone's kind of bored and like nothing's really happening beyond people just kind of being like, hey man, what's going on? And I felt like, ah, that's, that's my people. Yeah. (laughs) But people are just kind of uncool, but like trying so hard to like fit in at this party.
0: (laughs) And the the genius of it is that there are people who are cool and people who are uncool and people like the main that nominally the main character, um, Jason London's character, Pink, who just traverse all the world seamlessly, but yeah. they all know each other because ultimately they're in a small town and they're in high school. And so they aren't in a different caste. They aren't in a different level of society. They're just in geography class together. And there's something that lo- about that that both lowers the stakes and opens up the honesty, I think, that makes it really essential viewing.
2: Yeah, it's so true. I, I think the days was the first time I remembered seeing high school types who blurred into other types. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like Pink being the jock who's also the stoner and also kind of a smart kid who plays poker with the geeks. Like nobody is really like the jock or the nerd or the popular girl in the way that they are in the 80s movies. It was kind of fun to see that because I think a lot of people relate to being a little bit part of different groups.
1: Well, it's a funny thing where it's like Ferris Bueller is supposedly friends with everybody, but we never actually see him interact with anybody but Cameron and Sloan. You know, like we don't ever that's see Ferris point, yeah. hang out with jocks and weirdos and dweebs and whatever the line is in the principal's office, but you do see Pink kind of hang out with everybody.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of that, I mean, to be honest, is that it's Richard Linklater, right? Yeah. It's like it's him making a movie about himself at that age. Although I do think that's true too. Like I went back and talked to his high school friends in Huntsville and I do remember him being a guy who floated between different groups.
1: Yeah, I love that part of the book.
0: So you mentioned... um Richard Linklater, I can call him Rick now because I asked him last week and he <laughs> let me call him Rick before Sean Fantasy did. I wanted to make that clear on this podcast just in case Sean had any doubt about that. Um, and you talked about the amazing research and interviews he did, including travel, you know, going to his hometown, talking to these people who knew him there are a lot of stories, incredible stories in the book about filming and about the actors. And I'm sure we'll touch on some of that while we're talking to you. But I do think that since this podcast is, I mean, it's nominally about Chris's bad chicken recipes. But beyond that, I think we'd like to do a little bit of process talk for people who are interested in looking under the hood. And I wanted to, Get you talking a little bit about what it means to do an oral history, because as you brilliantly say in the introduction, that a good oral history is kind of seamless. It just feels like you're listening to these people talk to each other, but the reality couldn't be further from the truth. You're doing over a hundred, maybe even 150 distinct interviews, and then you have to build it like a Lego puzzle or something. Brick Legos aren't puzzles; I do them wrong, but like a Lego something, brick by brick. Uh-uh. Can you talk us through kind of the nuts and bolts of that? You you wrote an email to Richard later, and then you just kind of have to shoe leather it, right?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I added that author's note later and a lot of people have mentioned it. And the reason why I added it is because the lawyer was literally asking me, so were these two people in the same room when you were asking them about this? And I was like, oh no, like I just assumed that people know the process. So I wrote, so I was like, I better make it clear in this intro that like, that's not the way it works. Yeah. Um, So yeah, it's just kind of tracking down all these people. And then every single person I interviewed, I asked, who are the two people who you think have the most interesting perspective who I should talk to next? And the same people's names kept coming up over and over again. And I'm not just talking about cast. I'm talking about people in the crew. Um, you know, Linklater's editor, Sandra Dare, who uh, has been with him since the very beginning or almost the very beginning. People who really know him and also people who had documents that I could look through. So people opened up their archives to me. And I was able to see... You know, Linklater's angry memos that he wrote to executives at Universal.
1: There's an amazing letter about Robert Plant. Like the stuff about Robert Plant is my favorite from Led Zeppelin because he's mad about not being able to use rock and roll in the movie.
2: Yeah, the fights between Linklater and Robert Plant are (laughs) great. Like and the stuff (laughs) too, like Linklater, the angry way that he wrote about Robert Plant at the time. Like I think. For a little while, I wasn't sure whether that belonged in an oral history to have quotes from the primary source. But Mm. after a while, I was like, it's such a contrast between who he was at age 31 and who he is now. It's impossible to have him restate that and really capture it the same way that using his actual words from the time would.
0: That's the amazing thing about it is that he, um, and this was borne out by the conversation we had, including him last week, he... Is such a generous person, you know, and I think that, and you can speak to this. He didn't. He's anti-nostalgia. He didn't necessarily want to do this, he and yet
2: want to do this, let's be he clear, he opened
0: himself up to it. And and so for people listening who maybe are, you know, maybe they're interested in some of the things we're saying, but they're not sure they love this movie. The book is about so much more in this movie, including an incredible portrait of one of our great directors, and it begins with his childhood through his first movie, Slacker, into this movie and beyond. And and he s- seems like he. I mean, he's not a co-conspirator, but he was with you through a lot of this process.
2: Yeah. In the beginning, I definitely think he did not want to do this. I mean, he even said he was sick of talking about Dazed and Confused when I first <laughs> wrote him um, and said that he didn't think it was his best movie. He only um, wanted but, to talk about
0: Fast Food Nation the whole time and you kept having to yeah. steer him back.
2: You know, it's it's always interesting to hear what are the favorite movies of people who, um I don't know, like I like I see, still really loves Newton Boys. I don't know if he thinks that's his favorite. Oh movie, wow, but right. I mean, that's yeah. a movie that he, I think he thinks is underrated. It's just interesting to hear those things. But when I, you know, when he first agreed to do this book, I thought I might just have one interview with him, and that's it. Right. Um, so I had that interview, and then a while later, I had a very long interview. Maybe like I don't know. I was out in Austin and spent the day with him. Then after that, he was like, you know, if you have questions, you can just call me. Um, and then it kind of opened up from there and we got more and more conversations. Like he would call me, you know, at night when he was going home from shooting something and we just talked for a really long time during that drive. I didn't know it would be that way.
1: No, yeah. And like one of the most amazing things about the book is is the the wealth of, like you mentioned, the primary sources, some of the documentation, the original shooting script. I have to say that, that whole section where you're kind of breaking down and the voices are breaking down what the movie could have been, you know, and that there's the scene with um, the Vietnamese girls in town. There's the scene where the girls are talking about kind of like mortality at the Moon Tower party and stuff that doesn't necessarily make it into the film. The film is a little bit more lighthearted, I think. Did you come across stuff like that that changed your mind? Not necessarily about how you saw what we know as Dazed and Confused, but what Dazed and Confused maybe could have been?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's hard to talk about this scene without actually reading it to you to convey what it's like. But there's a rape scene um, in an early, very, very early version of this movie that still bothers me to this day. I mean, it bothers me because he did such a good job writing it and conveying, Mm -hmm. you know, what a what something, how something like that might've gone down in high school. But it really does tell you there are much darker scenes that could have been in this movie that didn't end up, like you said, that didn't end up in this movie. And I think it makes sense. I mean, I think that he thought it was hard to go from these highs of this like breezy high school movie to go in these really serious and really tough scenes in between. And ultimately he decided not to go there. But it's just, it does make you think that even now, what looks like a party movie, there are some pretty dark moments in the Dazed and Confused that we have now, too. Yeah.
0: I mean, we were mentioning it, the freshmanizing plays very differently. This was something that, and for people who haven't seen the movie in a while, like the rising seniors are terrorizing the rising freshman boys with paddles, and the rising senior girls are squirting ketchup and mustard and raw eggs on the girls and humiliating them sometimes with sexual talk in front of the boys. And this was true to Linklater's high school experience and has, yeah. I guess, challenged or amused or both audiences ever since. Some people think of that as funny. Some people think of it as horrifying and it's all sort of folded into this. And it and it kind of, the fact that it's in there and works speaks to something that I think is really amazing that your book illuminates, which was Linklater's, I mean, he was older than his cast. He was in his early thirties, but he let the movie be what it wanted to be, which is, yeah. feels like something, that's like some Jedi you know, 60-year-old director stuff, you know? And (laughs) it's weird that he can be as petulant enough to pick a fight with literally every studio executive with Robert Plant of Led Zeppelin, but also be zen enough to allow this movie to become what has become a beloved masterpiece.
2: Totally. You know, it's so funny with a lot of people who were in the editing room. A lot of them are like, oh, there's this other movie that, you know, was darker and like more layered. Like they see it in a different way of these scenes that got cut out. And Linklater was always like, No, it is what it needed to be. And also, despite the fact that I've chronicled this crazy intense fight between him and the executives of the studio, he Mm -hmm. got the movie that he always wanted to make. And so did they in some ways, even though Universal wasn't with him the whole step, every step of the way, they got a movie that's now a major cult classic. So I think, you know, both sides kind of won, despite the fact that they hated each other along the way.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he's such a fascinating character in the last 30 years of movie history, because... If you start with Slacker, you think, well, this guy's just going to be on the outer edges of, of pop culture, you know, this incredibly maverick, independent voice. And over and over again, he has made like pretty mainstream movies, and he makes them in his way. But where'd you go, Bernadette and Newton Boys, like you mentioned, School of Rock? Like he is like a pretty dependable director for hire at times, and. I I thought that like the sort of even in this incredibly personal story that I think you look back on, you're like, oh, that must have been Richard Linklater, like top to bottom director's cut. Everything that's in there is is in there because he wanted it to be or it's exactly the way he wanted it. In some ways, for as personal as Dazed and Confused is, it was about like making a independent film on a studio system. Right.
2: Yeah, exactly. And you think about that at the time, like. So many directors might have said, I'm not going to work with a studio. Like this is in the nineties when it's like, oh, you're not going to sell out, you know, but he Mm -hmm. knew he was like, I just want someone to fund the film. And so I can make it the way that I want to make it. And exactly like you said, Chris, like so many of his movies, um, even something like, you know, bad news bears, you can see where it's personal for him. Like baseball is super personal for him. Or even this um, series that he just made about animal rescue, you know, he's a really hardcore vegetarian and has been for a very long time. And you can tell how those projects are personal. For him. So he's still, even when it's big budget or low budget, he's always making very personal things.
0: One thing that all three of us know well from our time as music journalists is that the work that is most beloved by fans is often not the most beloved by those who created it. And, you know, like, the I guess a, a broader example of that is like interviewing Tom York from Radiohead and wanting to talk to him about Creep. Like nobody, there's this disconnect where people are like, for no, a no, second, that was- I
1: thought you were acting like we, as music critics, had fans that often come up to us and are what like, about you know, early like, work? yeah. Do me the a review. favor, will you just read that review of Fugazi's End Guys, Hits for me, man? My, like- my <laughs>
0: review of Fold Your Hands, Child. You walk like a peasant, skillfully line edited by John Dolan in 2000. Yes, it was a little bit about Scottish people in the rain, but uh, no. So, but what really struck me about this book is that while Linklater's you know reaction and relationship to the movie is is a little more complicated, by and large the cast feel as precious about this time in their life and this moment and what this movie meant to them as the fans do. Can you speak a little bit to that and your reaction when you got these actors on the phone and actors from people who immediately retired from the business and went on to different lives and careers to Matthew McConaughey who continues to delight in performing, basically cosplaying as himself when he's not yeah. playing other part in movies.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think people kind of see it as um, the last... I think because it was a lot of people's first movie or breakthrough movie doing this movie was such a creative process. You know, they're improvising lines in some senses. They're Some of them are writing their own scenes. They're really being encouraged to bring themselves to this role. And I think a lot of them thought like, oh, this is just what making movies is like. And then fast forward to a lot of them going to LA or going back to LA and being like, oh no, wait, movies are not like this. Like directors are not always going to let you contribute creatively on this level. Um, so I think that contributes to part of it. And then also I think it's like, think about the job you loved most. In your twenties, um, and how you know it has shaped probably a lot of the rest of your career. So I think they can't help but be nostalgic.
0: We mentioned that. that Bell and Sebastian review that was my favorite job <laughs> of the yes. 2000s. But but also we should <laughs> say and there's a gr- <laughs> there, That is there's a where's the oral history? Where's an oral history about that, Melissa? Um, but that, there uh, uh, that. And, and, and there have been great excerpts. I think the Ringer published one as well just detailing how much of the lifestyle of the movie was being reenacted by the cast who were having really intense love affairs and smoked all of the weed in Central Texas while making the movie. But um, can you talk a little bit about um, the enthusiasm specifically of of the cast getting them on the phone, like the differing reactions, right? Because you mentioned some people like Parker Posey who, along with Joey Lauren Adams, seem to have invented their characters and made themselves very significant. On yeah. the screen. Could you give us a couple examples of uh, some reactions from the cast, for example, that were positive, full of memories, and others who had a little bit more conflicted rela- relationship to the film?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it, it really mirrors high school, right? Like you ask people, what was high school like for you? And there's going to be people who are like, oh, it was amazing. And like, I dominated. <laughs> and there are other people <laughs> who are like, it sucked and people were mean to me. And you know, the people who think the others were mean to them, those people might not even remember that person or might not see it that way. You know, So I think there's a lot of that kind of blurring of the lines between a movie, the experience of making a movie about high school and the way you might actually remember high school or your early 20s or however old they were. So I think a lot of people... People, like you said, were um, so caught up in the romance of this creative environment and hooking up with each other and, you know, creating real chemistry that you could see on screen. Um, I think McConaughey's part of that. You know, his role expanded because people really loved hanging out with him. And then you get people like Michelle Burke Thomas, who played Jody, who was Mitch's older sister in the movie, who had a more complicated time, who, you know, loved it in terms of an acting experience, but really felt like... She didn't fit in with the rest of the girls, felt like some of the other girls were mean to her. You know, still, almost 30 years later, feels kind of hurt by the things people said in the book, I think, um, Hmm. about her. So I think people have had very mixed memories, most of which are really rosy, but some of which are kind of hard.
1: One of the things that often happens, especially like when we're talking about movies on like rewatchables or something like that, is we talk about an actor or actress's filmography as if it's like these series of chain reactions. And that there are all these like very like choose your own adventure moments where, and then obviously they were catapulted to superstardom based on this. But the funny thing about Days and Confuse is because there's this lag between its release and then its cult phenomenon status, I, I almost feel like they sometimes like it's false to say that Days like makes McConaughey or makes Affleck because. In a lot of ways, like I think McConaughey probably would have happened maybe either way or maybe Affleck would have happened either way or that these these are almost like do you feel like days happens in a vacuum for a lot of these performers or do you think that it's the thing that changes their careers, you know, one way or another going forward?
2: Well, to me, it's like like exactly what you said. People think it's like this launch pad and then you look at what happened immediately after that movie. It's like, you know, Anthony Rapp went to work at Starbucks right yeah. after this, you yeah. know? And it's like Ben Affleck was still auditioning for like teen dramas and stuff. Um, so it didn't really happen that way. And I think it really shows you I think everyone in that movie is so talented and so much of it is luck and so much of it also is who goes to bat for you. Like McConaughey is obviously incredibly talented, but you know, he met this guy, Don Phillips, who was a casting director and Don Phillips, for whatever reason, decided out of all the people in this movie, McConaughey is going to be the one who I really go to bat for to the extent of, you know, he had McConaughey move in with him in LA for a little while. He got him an agent. He told him how the industry worked basically behind the scenes and just kind of set him up to be as successful as he is today, and he didn't do that for everyone in that movie. So I think that's part of it too.
0: I mean, there, there are amazing details of the post days life captured in the book. I, I won't give all of them away. I think probably the greatest one though is uh, Jason London getting a new laptop and calling Apple Care to get advice on it, and Wiley Wiggins answers the phone because that's his job <laughs> at the moment. Um, I know everyone's
2: like, "Is that real? That can't be real," but it's real. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, or, or, or you know, the fact that that uh, Kristen, you know, Hoso plays Sabrina so beautifully, and then decided this isn't for me, and had a has had a great career as an activist. But that she basically, and I know there's details to this, and Rick, my pal, uh, clarified this when we talked, that Claire Danes also auditioned for that part, and though she was too young, I still think choosing the unknown was the right move. All that to say, I think that when we think of things as canonical and we love them, you know, we think of them as just celebratory. I, and, and the version there's a version of this book that could just be like a championship parade of like, you made this great thing. And the the detail that I just love so much, and this, this speaks to your amazing skill in bringing it to life, is we get a window into just being young in a deeply uncertain profession that I think is universal. And so we see these people, these actors um, from the vantage point of 25 years or longer, 25 years, 28 years now, they've just had some stuff. And so you know, you hear about Adam Goldberg like, and Nikki Cat running into each other at auditions thinking they were better than this. And, and also this incredible chapter at the end that I'd love you to expand on a little bit. But I'd love for you to expand on it in general, but expound on it in this podcast where it's just like Hollywood in the 90s and Affleck and Damon and John Favreau and Vince Vaughn and, and uh, McCone, you know, these, all these guys are just kind of young and hungry and they have no idea what's going to happen. And we're reading about them and we know what happened. And it's very powerful to read it that way.
2: It really is, and and also like the minute things that cause people to go off in one direction versus another direction. Like it's, or maybe not so minute, but it's interesting to me that one of the reasons Affleck said that he wrote Goodwill Hunting was that he was tired of people thinking he was an asshole. That like (laughs) he was an asshole and dazed, and then you know he did Mallrats, and then he heard that Quentin Tarantino was like, "Who's that guy in Days Confused? What an asshole!" Um, And then you know he was like, "I I don't think people are." Realizing the craft I'm putting in into the performance of an asshole,
0: and, and, and <laughs> what's amazing is that after Goodwill Hunting, no one ever thought ill of him again. Like it, <laughs> right, it, it, exactly. it worked. Yeah. <laughs> it, it 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 totally worked. Slam dunk.
1: I was curious. Have you thought about when you were talking to these people? Because, like you you mentioned, um, like there are some people who have sort of like issues with their memories or other person's memories of of the experience. Do you think it would have been much different to have done this book ten years ago? Like, I wonder how much age has kind of given people perspective, but also leveled them out about like their kind of relationship to the project.
2: 100%. And I feel so lucky about that. I mean, Linklater even told me, that he was at a time in his life when he was ready for this and that he might not have been ready for this at a different time a lot of people told me that hmm. um you know there's a set deck on the movie he was really great to talk to and she actually was a long time um, indie rock manager for bands like pavement hmm. um and she had just moved across the country and was like opening up all these boxes from her previous life and she was like this is the right exact moment to talk to me <laughs> So I think that was true. I think it might've been a little too painful for some people. And with the time passing, they were kind of ready to revisit it again.
0: And what's incredible is all these people, over a hundred people are forever connected because of this movie, but the movie is a static thing that exists in the world and separate and apart from reunions. And there have been some, and there was a really fascinating uh, reunion live read that happened just last month that I recommend people check out on YouTube. You now, Melissa, you are the glue. That has connected these people in a really fascinating way. You are in all of their lives, and I was wondering what that has been like for you. Is it in? Because I think we all know that the relationship between um, interviewer and interviewee can extend beyond the tape recording sometimes. And what has that been like for you over the last year after you did the initial interviews or the substantive interviews? Have people continued to be in touch with you? Have they checked in with you after they've read the quotes? Like. What what's your life been like after the final draft was sent in?
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I want to hear from everybody, good or bad. If they hate the book or love the book, I would love to hear. But some people I sent the book to and have not heard back from it at all. Um, some people have um, been in touch with me to try and get in touch with other cast members. Some people have reconnected because of the book. Wow. Um, and some people still text me. You know, like after there was a Dazed and Confused live read recently to raise money for, you know, getting out the vote in Texas. And after that, a bunch of people texted me to be like, What did you think of this? And what do you think <laughs> of that? It's kind of like a little bit of gossip. Um, and Nikki Kat still texts me songs he likes sometimes. We talk about music. I mean-
0: Th- this, c- could you give him our numbers because <laughs> we, Chris and I have long time. We are long time, Nikki Cat aficionados. <laughs> yeah, I just want to talk is, to him about oh way of God, the I gun. I'd Love
2: yeah. to talk to you guys. <laughs> he
0: he he is definitely a question mark. Were most of the live read questions about Rory Cochrane, like, was he? <laughs> because you know, many people like Ben Affleck insist they are not their characters. Ben Affleck right. is not a bully who paddles people, but Rory Cochrane played Slater, the stoner, the most. I mean, that's saying something in this movie, but yes. the most extreme stoner. His performance in the live read may have been method, unclear.
2: Yeah, you know, I I don't know the answer to that. I wish I did. What's interesting about Roy Cochran is to me, he seems very different in real life than he comes across in that movie. Like he's kind of a, a very intense, kind of soft spoken, kind of sensitive guy is the way he strikes yeah. me. Not at all like Slater in the movie. Um, so I'm not, to, I, I'm just as baffled as everybody else. I don't, I don't really know. I think
1: that's like across the board. Like if you look at, when you actually take a step back and look at who's in that movie, in that movie, like I think that you can look at McConaughey and be like, oh, well, he's just, he's just doing Matt Mac- Matthew McConaughey. But like Parker Posey is like a Lower East Side art chick like she's super like a super cool new york city character who's just transplanted into texas and is doing this this texas high school mean girl thing that's really amazing i mean the performances are actually pretty pretty fantastic like that
2: Definitely, you forget how much goes into these performances. Like, the weird thing about McConaughey is everybody says, that's just McConaughey, but that's not what they were saying when he came in there. Like, everybody said he came in there with like khakis and like a golf club. And they were like, this guy? (laughs) Like, he seems like he's way too clean cut for this sleazy character. So, it's interesting that even McConaughey was really like doing a performance.
0: I, I love one of the details you mentioned it earlier, alluded to it that you know his performance was just so compelling and he was so magnetic that he just ended up in more and more of the movie. But I love the way Linklater does this and the way you captured it, that he kind of approaches it, even though he is fastidious and he's a technician, like all directors are. but it's kind of like he has a mixing board in front of him, and he's not sure what the movie's going to be. And, you know, when I watched the movie again recently after reading your book, it did strike me, as you say in the book, why is Wooderson in the final scene? He's not even in high school. Yeah. He's, it was supposed to be Pickford, but McConaughey's just great. And so yeah. he's there. And yeah. and that was such a smart, intuitive way of making a movie towards what the movie wanted to be, right? And and he did kind of uh, ascend at the expense of the other actor who probably suffers the most in your book. We should probably touch on that just briefly. Uh, the actor, Sean Andrews, who plays Pickford.
2: Yes, Yeah. I mean, I think that the mixing board is the perfect analogy. Like I think he just wanted real chemistry and he just wanted to see, I mean, even in the auditions, sometimes they would just have people go up and interact with each other. Just like watch to see how people ate pizza together at an audition. (laughs) Like who does that now? (laughs) But you know what I mean? Like they just spent a lot of time just observing and seeing how people interacted with each other. So I think that really behooved McConaughey that he got along well with a lot of people in the cast.
1: I basically have one more final question for you. Yeah. When do you think you will next watch days to confused?
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's such a good question.
1: Is the over under is it 8 years?
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean like, you know, I, I think I have done a lot of research for this book and yet still people tell me All the time that they have watched this movie more than I have, or they'll have some like, you know, (laughs) tiny thing that I didn't notice. So I think, I think it might be sooner than I think. I mean, I love it when people write me and tell me things that I didn't notice or, um, you know, a little bit deep background of someone in Texas that they knew who was in this film. I'm still not sick of it yet.
0: I would also just throw in here, and Melissa has heard me say this, uh, and I challenge our listeners to see if it, the same applies to you. More than almost any movie that I remember lovingly from my youth, this movie feels like a sieve. It's almost entirely subjective. Every time I see it, I've remembered it wrong, you know, because yeah. as it's grown and as we've grown in age, like the parts I thought were important aren't important and vice versa. And it's, it's kind of slippery. You find Maybe yourself that speaks...
1: identifying with different characters.
0: Yeah, now I'm more like the, the hard-ass coach. I think that's ultimately right. <laughs> I think that's how most people see me. Right. But but like in the spirit of the mixing board thing like it's just kind of it's hard to and, and this is what makes also the book so special, it's hard to hold this movie in your hand because it's just kind of oozing and sliding all over the place, you know, and it means a lot to different people for very different reasons.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think all my favorite movies, you watch them differently at different stages in your life and you, you remember different parts of them differently. Um, it's like with slacker, you know, like there's certain yeah. monologues in slacker that might seem silly at first that seem more profound now, or like people always say that things change, um, you know, as you get older and the things that seem important, um, might be not the same things that seemed important when we we're younger.
0: And you know, you know how we know that is true is because Chris has actually pulled a reverse McConaughey where he actually used to be more like Wooderson and now he wears golf khakis.
2: That's right.
1: (laughs) That's how most people age. That
0: That is true. (laughs) That is actually true. It
2: is the worst. (laughs) Melissa,
0: thank you so much for coming on the watch and talking to us about the book. It's the oral history of Dazed and Confused. We will not make that and mistake also again.
2: And oral history. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it for now. <laughs> when Chris's competing volume, which is just interviews with Sean Andrews and Villageovich, comes out,
2: I would so, read that. I would totally
0: yeah. It's called Scores Settled. Um, all right. All right. All right. Is in bookstores now. Please go buy it at independent bookstores, which need your support more than ever. Melissa, it's great to talk to you.
1: Melissa, thank you so much. Uh,
2: thank you so much, you guys. This is fun.